Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Bob Boucher. Um, I lead worship here, but not today. Today, I'm bringing the Word of God to you. So thank you for that privilege and opportunity. It's, uh, it's good to be with you. I even brought, um, I even brought uh, props today, believe it or not. So, wow. I mean, this is crazy. Uh, Pastor Ken's gone one Sunday. I didn't think he was going to be back today, so I thought this would be good. I'll just go ahead and sneak it by him. But he showed up anyway. So, and there's that. So, um, this may look a little bit odd and a little bit weird, but hopefully it'll make some sense here in a little bit. So, uh, as, um, as Scott was saying, we do, we're very excited about um, where God is um, sending us, uh, sending us to the city we live in. We live in Flowery Branch, we love our city. We believe uh, our city needs the gospel as more and more people are moving in. And we see fewer uh, churches that I think are really standing up, preaching the gospel without a shame, without apology. And we really want to, uh, to do that and honor our Lord and make sure that we're teaching expositionally through the Bible verse by verse and uh, just exalting our Savior and making sure that gospel is clear so that people can um, confess Christ as Savior and Lord, repent of their sins, and know the beauty and the joy of uh, serving him as, as, a, uh, as a disciple, as a follower. So... Uh, thank you for your um, involvement in that. So whether you knew it or not, if you are a member of New Branch, you're involved in that. This is something you're already doing. You're sending us out. You're praying for us. you be giving. And some of you may be going with us. And we're excited that you uh, are considering that. And that starts with us um, next Sunday night in our home. We'll begin to start meeting as, uh, as a core group, beginning to get a vision for what it might look like to establish a new gospel-centered church in our city. So uh, excited about that. Please be praying about how the Lord may want to use you in coming alongside us in that. Well, this morning, um, I wanted to take an opportunity to share something that's, um, you know, that's been very meaningful to me personally and to our family over a number of years now. And um, it's something that uh, has aided our worship. It is something that has helped us keep the gospel of Jesus Christ front and center in our lives together, uh, again, individually and as a family. And that something is called the church calendar. And the church calendar, or it may also be known as the Christian calendar or the liturgical calendar. Now, let me just go ahead and say this before we get out the gate, that you're not going to see anywhere in the Bible where it says you must, you know, uh, you must celebrate and observe special days. Right? It doesn't even say that you must celebrate and observe Christmas and Easter, which are two big days, of course, in the year. You're not going to find those anywhere in the Bible. But... You will see this um, in Romans 14. It's really a matter of choice and conscience. Just a few months ago, as our church was continuing to work its way through um, the book of Romans, the letter there to the Romans, uh, we read this in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 5. It says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all, day, all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So I just want to, you know, suggest to you maybe the value and the benefit that can be found and observing the church calendar. But I don't want you to hear in any way from me that I'm advocating you must do this, that this is a scriptural, a scriptural command that says you must do this. I just want to open up into the gospel readily in front of us all throughout the year. 
and how it helps us also focus our worship as well. So this is, so our sermon today has got two parts. There's this part, and then we'll actually be talking about um, a specific text in the book of Revelation. Uh, a lot of our songs this morning have, uh, in our scripture readings, have been pointing toward that, and I want to get us there. But before I do, I want to give us a context. So what you see here is what we would call um, uh, a circle of seasons, a circle of seasons. And this, um, I, wonder, I wonder if anyone would maybe know where we are on this church calendar today. Today, um, there's a whole, you know, these are all 52 Sundays. I wonder if anyone would maybe know where we are today. Think we're here? Think we're here? Over here? Getting close, getting close. Right, right here, right here. Okay, so this is where we are today on the church calendar. So we find ourselves right here. Okay, <clears throat> so this is a day that in the church calendar is known as Christ the King Sunday or the reign of Christ. This is a day when the church of God remembers that our Lord has ascended, that he is in heaven, that he is ruling and reigning currently now at the right hand of the Father, but that he is also going to come again and he is going to set up his rule on the earth. And it will be uncontested. It will be unchallenged. And everybody everywhere, all nations, tribes, language, and tongues, they will bow before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, King Jesus. That's where we are on the calendar today. Now, what does that mean for next Sunday? Anybody know what begins next Sunday? Advent begins next Sunday. And we're actually going to be having an Advent series um, to prepare our hearts for that. So uh, we know, we think about Advent, but here's the deal. Advent actually begins a new year. We, in our calendar, our secular calendar, we're looking at January 1st, and January 1st for us begins a new year. But the church, the church marks time differently. The church marks time around the life of Jesus Christ. And so they keep the life of Christ in front of them, keep it front and center. Uh, and so really the point of the church calendar or the liturgical calendar is to walk together and rehearse the life of Christ as a body of Christ seeking to derive Christian spirituality from living within or inhabiting it. Um, so let's just take a little look at how it's set up. It's basically set up as having two halves. So the first half beginning next Sunday, the first week of Advent, and ending all the way down here on the red. And we'll get to that in a minute. So that's basically the first half of the year. We call that half, uh, or that first half of the year is really, really follow the life of the, sto the story of the life of Jesus Christ. It begins with the four Sundays of Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas, and it stretches all the way here, the red dot, to Pentecost. All right, we'll talk about that here briefly in a moment. So the first half of the year starts here. It focuses on the life of Christ, and it comes to Pentecost. The second half of the year tells the story of the church, which begins on Pentecost and goes all the way up to where we find ourselves here today on Christ the King Sunday. It tells the story of the church. So two halves of the calendar. First half tells the story of the life of Christ. The second half tells the story of the church. There are two cycles now within the first half of the Christian calendar. Two cycles. The first cycle um, of, the, of that is called the, the cycle of light. And it has three seasons that make up the cycle of light. Season of Advent, four Sundays long. And then we have actually a season of Christmas. Now, most of us, we see Christmas and just see it as December 25th on our calendar. And it is certainly that. But also the church over a number of centuries has seen that to really contemplate and consider the incarnation of God, the fact that God would take on flesh and walk among us, 
I mean, the eternal and infinite God becoming an infant and coming for our redemption. I mean, that is incredible. To take one day, we needed to stretch that over 12 days. And so that's where you get the idea of 12 days of Christmas. And so Christmas is actually more than a day. It's a season of days. It's a season of 12 days where we focus on the, um, on the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where he, the eternal God, becomes flesh. And he came for us and for our salvation. Then, add, uh, then Christmas, those 12 days, give, uh, um, go ahead and move toward, give way toward epiphany. Epiphany is a word that means manifestation. And really what happens on Epiphany, this is a day where we commemorate or remember the visit of the Magi or the wise men. They make their long pilgrimage and they find Jesus, you know, there in Bethlehem. He's probably no longer an infant at this time. He's probably a little toddler, but they find him as the star leads them to find where Jesus is. And there, the whole point of Epiphany is that Christ has come as the Savior for the world. And so here we have Magi from the east for a long, long journey, making their trek to find he who was born king of the Jews, but not just the king of the Jews, but he is a special king. He is the king of the world. And so we see that though Jesus came from, um, from the Israelites as a Jew, he came as not just king of the Jews, he came as king of the world. And so that is commemorated on Epiphany. And throughout that season, the rest of these green days, you focus on learning things uh, where Jesus is manifested through his baptism. Uh, he is, his glory is being manifested through his teaching, through his healings, and through, um, uh, and through a, lot of his, uh, uh, a lot of his miracles. And so, and then that leads us all the way here to this, um, the second part. That's the, that's the first cycle, and we call that the cycle of light. It has Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. Um, it's a season of preparation where Advent is preparing for the birth of Christ, we look back in time. We have all these prophecies from the Old Testament that would foretell that a Messiah would come. And then we look back and say that God made good on his promise 2,000 years ago when Jesus, his son, came to be born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph. And so we look back, but you, we can kind of think of what it must be like to be in a land of darkness. Promises in the Old Testament, waiting for when the fulfillment of that promise should come. And so they're waiting, they're asking the Lord, they're praying, they're anticipating, they're waiting and praying and waiting and praying and anticipating. And that's really what a season of Advent does. Well, the word Advent means coming. And there are actually two comings of Christ. We remember one at Christmas, but we are also looking ahead and looking forward to the second coming of Christ, his return. And that's one of the things that you do here in Advent. Usually in the first few weeks of Advent, you're actually looking more toward the end. You're looking more toward the end of history when Jesus will come back and reclaim all that is his. And, that, and he'll make all the wrongs right. We, when we enter into Advent season next week, that's where we are in the history of the world. We are in between the two comings of Christ. Christ has come. He's given his life to us as a sacrifice for sin. All who put their hope and trust in him have been forgiven and made right with God and been brought into his family and now walk with him as Lord, as Lord of their lives. And now we look forward to his future return where the whole earth will be full of his glory. And so that's, that's what we look forward. And then we keep getting closer and closer then here to Christmas. So these two cycles in the cycle of, of light, that, um, well, you got the cycle of, uh, cycle of light, that is focused on preparation. That's what Advent does. It prepares our heart for Christmas. Preparation gives way to fulfillment. That is Christmas, 
when Jesus comes as the fulfillment of all the promises. And then at Epiphany, it's a proclamation where we proclaim to the world that Jesus has come. So with Advent, we anticipate a great light. Isaiah 9-2 says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You get to Christmas and you celebrate the true light that comes into the world, as John 1-9 says. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then Epiphany, we proclaim Jesus as the light of the world, as John 8-12 says. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that's the first cycle in the first half of the year. And that can also be known as a season of revelation or, again, a cycle of light where in our darkness the light of Christ shines through. And then that gives way here to the second half of uh, uh, the second cycle. And, the, um, and that second cycle is a season of seasons of redemption. So seasons of revelation give way now to seasons of redemption. The first season of redemption is seen in these, uh, these weeks called Lent. And Lent is a season of humility. It's a time of self-examination. It's a time of repentance of sin. It's being aware that it was our sin that caused Jesus to come and take our place at the cross. It consider, we, during that season, we consider what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus. It's a, it's a time that spans 40 days. Generally, during that time, it's a time of fasting. And we remember the temptation of our Lord in the wilderness. We remember also his sufferings as he, as he set his face to Jerusalem, where he knew that he would be our sacrifice for sin on the cross. So see, the season of Lent is also like Advent. It's a time of preparation. It's a time of anticipation. It's a time of preparing ourselves for the redemption that comes in Christ, which happens here on Easter. On Easter, we celebrate and remember the, the resurrection and the victory of Jesus Christ from the dead. So 40 days of fasting now gives way to 50 days of feasting. 50 days of feasting. So Easter is more than just one day. Perhaps maybe you know that Easter is the most holy day of all days on the Christian calendar. And we, we know we ought to be so excited. We ought to come so prepared to sing hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. And somehow it's also like Christmas. We get so distracted, so much life, so many other things crowd out things. And then when that day comes, we're really not prepared to worship. We're really not prepared to give it all we've got because we've done very little preparing before that day comes. And so Lent helps to prepare for that so that when Easter comes, we can greet that morning with, he is not here, but he is risen from the dead. Come and see where his body lay. It's not there anymore. We hear that great news of the empty tomb and the risen Savior. And we can celebrate that, and we do celebrate that for 50 days of feasting, remembering Christ's post-resurrection appearances and his ascension, where he is now, where he is seated in his flesh before God on, at his right hand, and where he is ruling and reigning from his throne in heaven. So just like the first cycle, we have a season of preparation, followed by a season of fulfillment, then by a special day of rejoicing, which is proclamation. The same thing happens here. Then we get to Pentecost. Pentecost, after great, the great 50 days, after 50 days for, from Easter, this is the day that we remember that the promised Holy Spirit, the one whom Jesus said, the comforter, that, that he would come, and that when he comes, he would empower the church for their mission, for their witness to go into all the world and to make disciples of every nation. And so with Pentecost, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus' death and his resurrection. We proclaim his kingship and his lordship in the power of his Holy Spirit to all nations everywhere as we are sent out on mission. 
So that is the first half of the church calendar. And that first half focuses on the story of the life of Christ. The second half of the year, beginning on Pentecost and leading up to where we are today, is, um, is actually the story of the church or the life of the church. And we call that actually ordinary time. Ordinary time. That doesn't sound like a very exciting word, does it? We got through talking about all these exciting things in the first half of the year, and now we're like, ordinary time. Can we come up with a better, better name than that? But so much of our life really is lived in the ordinary, isn't it? That's really where sanctification happens. That's where our sanctification gets worked out. What it really looks like to follow Christ in the mundane of everyday life. It's also called ordinary time, but because each Sunday is, is numbered, just one, two, three, four, that's ordinal time, ordinal numbers. And so it's kind of given, that's where that comes from. But the theme of Pentecost, that's what sets up sort of the life of the second half of the, of the Christian year. It sets the theme. You have the presence of Christ in the world through the Spirit, transforming the individual Christian and empowering the church for mission. And this is where we find ourselves today now, at the very last Sunday of Ordinary Time. One, another year of the Christian calendar coming to a close. And that day is Christ the King Sunday, or the reign of Christ this is what uh, I mentioned earlier, and this is what we've been singing about already this morning. This is when we celebrate that our Lord is enthroned in glory. And we are praying, even as uh, John prayed this morning, we're praying for God's kingdom to come uh, on earth, even as it is in heaven. We're celebrating that Christ will come again in power and glory to reign over all the earth and to right all wrongs. And then as we see where we'll be next Sunday, we begin the cycle all over again. The circle begins. It's full circle. We look forward and anticipating with great joy and with great wonder when Jesus comes again for his own, when he comes for us and he sets up his rule and reign on the earth. We lament our broken world. We anticipate the final coming of our Lord. And that, that's the story of the church calendar. That's the story of the, of, of the liturgical calendar or the Christian calendar. And this has been something that our family has used for a number of years to keep the gospel in front of us. Where are we? Let's not forget what Jesus has done. What does it look like to live as people waiting for the return of Christ? What does it look like to celebrate that he has come? What does this mean? That it means we tell the world that he's come, that light has come. And then we also have to be, we come, become acquainted with still our own sinfulness and still our own weakness and our desire and our need for Christ to die for us because we are so acquainted with the fact that because of our sin that we are deserving of the wrath of God and so that Jesus took our place at the cross. And when he took our place at the cross and then was raised again to life, we know that he won for us a victory over Satan, sin, and death and ensuring our own hope for life after this one. He is our king, he is our victor, and we cannot wait for him to come and set up his, his throne and his rule upon the earth. So that, that keeps the gospel in front of us. That helps us keep, um, keep worship fresh throughout the year. And it helps us walk together in community with brothers and sisters all around the world and with all brothers and sisters who've come before us. And unless the Lord tarries uh, for brothers and sisters who will come even after us. So that's, that's kind of that first half about the church calendar. And sort of the way this kind of works, I'm going to use a couple big words here. And it's only because I read them somewhere and they just sound really cool. Uh, and if it, if it impresses you, good. I don't know. Um, so two words. The first word is anamnesis. Anamnesis. It sounds kind of like a word you're familiar with, amnesia, right? And so it's a Greek word, anamnesis, but with amnesia, we forget things. 
Anamnesis is the opposite. It's so we don't forget things. And so with anamnesis, what we're doing is we're looking back and remembering. It's what we do when we take communion. Every time we gather as the church and we take communion, we receive the bread and the cup, what we're doing is we're looking back and we're remembering that Christ gave his life for us. He gave his body. His body was broken. His blood was shed for our redemption. We look back and we remember that time. And in doing so, it's a way of bringing the past to bear on the present for us as if we were there. And it's like we remember it was our sins that caused Jesus to go to the cross. It was our sins that he was paying for. It was his blood that was required to be our ransom, to forgive us of sin and redeem us from, uh, from slavery to our sin and to the devil. And so we do that with anamnesis. We look back and we remember. And we do the same thing in the church calendar. But that's not it. There's also a second word, prolepsis. That's a word where we look into the future. We look into the future and we anticipate what will come in the present. It's a way of looking at what will happen one day in the future that we know it is as sure as going to happen because God has said so. And we believe it in faith. And just like we sang this morning, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. We, he has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. That day hasn't come, but we sing as if it's as sure as it has happened today. We're bringing the future to bear on the present. So in an anamnesis and in prolepsis, every time we take communion, for example, we're taking what Christ did in the past and remembering it. We're looking forward into the future and anticipating what will happen. And we bring the past and the future to bear right now in the present in our worship. Does that make sense? That's what's happening. And that's what we do also as we walk together through the church calendar. That's what it's helped our family do as well. It keeps us grounded. It keeps us walking with Jesus through every season of the year. And so now I want to move to our second half today. I want to move to, okay, that's context, but where are we today? We're at Christ the King Sunday. So what does this mean for us? So you have your Bibles. I know this is crazy. We usually say, if you have your Bibles, we say it the first second of the message. If you have your Bibles, please get them out and turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Actually, let me back up. So this will be our main text, Revelation chapter 11. But I do want us to come back to Revelation chapter 1 so we have some context first. So keep your finger in Revelation 11. That will be our primary passage. But before we get there, I want us to look at the beginning of this book, Revelation. Again, we're talking today about where we are on the church calendar, wrapping up another year before Advent begins and a new year begins. This is Christ the King Sunday, and I just want to get some context before we get there. Okay, beginning Revelation chapter 1, let's read the first eight verses together. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we spend time in this this book of Revelation this morning. We thank you, God, for it and how necessary it is to sustain the faith of your suffering saints over all the earth. We thank you for these words that you've given to the Apostle John and that you've given for him to write down so that we have them today. They are there to strengthen us. They are there to give us courage. They are there to encourage us to persevere and to endure and remain faithful. God, as we see and as we read uh, in, uh, in this book today, open our eyes to your majesty and to your glory, King Jesus. Help us to anticipate with great joy your return and what that will mean when you come back. Now, Lord, please speak to our hearts. Please stir in our hearts a desire for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we read Revelation chapter 1 is to give us some background and some context for where we're going to be in chapter 11, just so we know where we're at. Two times we read in these verses reminds us who's, who's giving this revelation. This is Jesus' revelation to the church. Yes, it reveals things about Jesus, but it is also from Jesus. Jesus is giving this revelation to his church. His church is under great persecution in this time of which this letter is being written. And his church is still being persecuted around the globe today, though we may not feel it nearly as much close to home. It is certainly the experience of many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. And it is this book that God has given to encourage and strengthen his church and give them hope in the midst of great suffering and persecution. And so several times, two times already in these verses, we're reminded, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. See, Jesus is already ruler of kings on earth. He is just ruling right now, where? From his throne in heaven at the Father's right hand. But already in this letter, he's saying, I want you to know that grace and peace comes to him who is, who was, and who is to come. This is the Father God. Father God, who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the number seven just means a number of uh, completeness, fulfillment. And it's just a way of saying, this is another way of saying the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is there with God. From the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and rulers of the kings of earth. So this, the apostle John is giving to the church, hey, grace and peace to you from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit. 
and reminding them that he is coming again. Jesus says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And he says one last time, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's where this comes from. That's the context. That's the background. Now, because Jesus has already, now we're not going to look at it now, but in chapter 1, if you continue the remainder of that chapter, the Apostle John gets a vision of the risen, ascended Christ. And it is glorious and it is scary. And when he turns and looks at the voice who calls him and he sees a picture of Jesus enthroned in glory, he falls on his face as though dead in the presence of holiness. And yet Jesus tells him not to fear. And and then he says, but I want you to write to the seven churches who are in Asia. I want you to write to them. Tell my churches, I know that times are hard. I know that persecution they are having to suffer and endure, but I am the Lord. I am the risen one. I died and I am risen again, and I will come again for them. And he gives each of his churches, seven churches, um, in chapters two and chapter three, he reminds them, I know you. I know your deeds. I know what's going good and I know what's not going good. And he's asserting his lordship and calling his church to faithfulness, calling them to repent where needed, encouraging them where they're doing well, but letting them know that he is among them and he is with them and to not fail, but to continue to endure and to persevere. Then we get to chapters four and five. In chapters four and five, the apostle John is given a vision the, the heaven is open. The door to heaven is open and he sees the throne in heaven in chapter four. And he sees one who's seated on the throne. And this is what he sees in this vision. In verse, chapter four, verses five and six, it says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, there was as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. When he talks about flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, this occurs several times in the book of Revelation, but it's not like it's unheard of. It's also happened in Exodus when God called his people to the mountain to give them the, the law of God in Exodus uh, at, at Sinai. This is a theophany. This is a way where God, who cannot be seen because he is spirit, manifests himself in a way that we, we are able to take in God's glory. We're to take in his holiness and to be in awe and to fear him rightly. And this is the vision that John sees as heaven is open and he sees the throne. The throne is a big, big theme all throughout the book of Revelation. You will see the throne multiple times. And so much of what happens in Revelation is not what's happening on the earth, but you see it from the vantage point of heaven, what's going on in heaven. And you never at one point ever see anything in heaven like they're wringing their hands, that they're nervous, they're worried something's not going to work out right. Everything in heaven is perfectly under control, as you can see here by this reference to a sea of glass like crystal. What do we know about the sea? The sea is always uncontrollable. It always took lives. It's chaos. It always seemed that it was uh, unable to be controlled. And yet here before the throne of God, the sea is as still as glass, like crystal. It is under control. It is under the sovereign power of God. It is peaceful and it is still. And this reminds you of Jesus when he was in the flesh and he was on a boat and and the waves began to roar and his disciples said, wake up, are you afraid we're going to die? And what did he do? He just spoke to the wind and the waves and immediately what happened? They became still. Because he's God, all power, 
power over all the universe, power over the elements of nature. He's all-powerful, and we see that here in this vision around the throne in chapter 4. The scene moves to chapter 5, and Allison read this this morning in our worship, where now where praise is given in chapter 4 to God the Father because he is the creator of everything. Now praise moves to chapter 5 to Jesus the Son because he is worthy as our Redeemer, having given his life to us. He is the Lamb that was slain, and he redeems people from every language, nation, people, and tribe. And so... He began to worry because there's this scroll in heaven. And there's this scroll which outlines, you could say, the final events of history according to God's plan. And nobody is worthy in heaven, it would seem, to open the scroll and to open its seals. And John begins to fret. But one of the, one of the elders tell him, you don't need to fear because one is worthy. And this is what it says, that he is Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he is conquered by dying as a sacrificial lamb, and he, because of that, earns the right to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so now we see Jesus, not just the lion of the tribe of Judah, not just the root of of David, not just a branch that would come later from David's line, but he is where the source of David in the kingship all along is the root of David. And he is conquered as a king conquers, but the way that he conquers is he dies as a sacrificial lamb. And that's why we see him now as a lion, but also as a lamb. And it is through his death and through being victorious over the grave, over Satan, over sin, he now has the right to open the scroll and its seven seals. So Jesus opens the seven seals containing the judgments of God, which destroy a quarter of the earth. That's what we begin to see in chapters 6, mostly chapter 6. We start seeing the, the seals are broken, and every time he opens a seal and breaks a seal, a judgment from God happens, and it pours out upon the earth. And it's bad. The judgment, it, uh, and when each seal is open, it, it uh, affects a fourth or a quarter of the earth. But before the seventh seal was opened, we see in chapter 7 that God seals his people. God seals his people. It says in chapter 7, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the numbers of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. This is really just, again, another number in uh, Revelation that is used really to stand for the total number of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament combined. The total number of God's people, and he seals them on their forehead so that when the judgment of God comes upon the earth, his people are spared the judgments of God. They're not spared the suffering that comes from Satan and his kingdom because there are martyrs all throughout the book of Revelation. And God encourages them to endure and to stay faithful to the end. And he reminds them, you can do this because I died and I I am alive again, so stay faithful. But when it comes to God bringing the judgments on the earth, he seals his people and protects them. Just like when you think about the Passover, When judgment would come on the Passover, 
those who would take the blood of the lamb were spared as the death angel would come through town. And when they saw the blood of the lamb, God's people were covered. We see, that this, we see this again here in Revelation 7. And now by this, what happens here is we start getting to the seventh seal. Now the seventh seal is open. And when the seventh seal is opened, you would think, all right, something big is about to happen, but it actually goes hush. It gets quiet. The seventh seal is open. And when the seventh seal is open in heaven for about a half an hour, there's just silence. It's like a calm before the storm. And what happens? Well, what's about to happen then is after that half hour, then we have seven angels who stand before God's throne. And these seven angels are now given seven trumpets. And this is going to be the second cycle of judgments that God gives to the earth. And these judgments are worse than the seal judgments because the seal judgments only um, destroyed a quarter of the earth, but now the trumpet judgments will destroy a third of the earth. So it's getting more intense and more widespread. So, the tr- like, so I said, the seven trumpets are harsher, destroying a third of the earth. And this is where we bring it to our text in Revelation 11 because now we're looking at the seventh trumpet. So you're in Revelation 11. Look with me at verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. So the end of chapter 11 actually is the end of the vision that John began seeing in chapter 4. When the door to heaven was open and he saw a throne, he saw the Father, he saw the Son, and now at the end of chapter 11, we're seeing the end of that first vision because just like there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder in chapter 4, now we see it again at chapter 11, reminding us that God has spoken and that God is in this. So I want to focus now for the remainder of our time on these verses in chapter 11. Because when the seventh trumpet is blown, this is very different than what happened at the end of the seventh seal. When the seventh seal was broken, it was silence for 30 minutes in heaven. Everything just stopped in awe of wonder what would happen next. And then seven trumpets were given, and now this is the seventh trumpet. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, history as we know it comes to an end. Look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. It's not silence this time. 
There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's not quiet. When the seventh angel blew his trumpet, there are loud voices in heaven proclaiming that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, God the Father, and of his Christ, Jesus the Son, they will, they, will joint share, they will share joint rulership. And it says that he shall reign forever and ever. To me, this scene feels very reminiscent of an Old Testament story. Joshua. We think of Joshua, and we think of the, 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 the people of Israel, and they're to go and they're to take on Jericho. They're coming into the land of Canaan, but there's a problem. There are people who already possess Canaan, and Jericho is a strong, fortified city with these walls, and they seem to have no fear, but God says, you're going to go, and you're going to take this city, and this is how you're going to do it. For seven days, you're going to walk around the city, and and we'll blow trumpets, and on that last day, on the very seventh day, we're going to walk around the city seven times, blowing trumpets seven times, and after that seventh time, the trumpets are blown and you walk around the city. I want every one of you, Joshua says, to shout. Well, you know how the rest of that story goes. The seventh trumpet is blown, followed by a shout. And what happens? The walls came a tumbling in down, right? Y'all know that song. And God's enemies are destroyed. That's what we see here with the seventh trumpet. The same thing, the end of history as we know it. With the seventh trumpet, we hear loud voices in heaven, almost a shout, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is beautiful. Every time, the Bible speaks of the return of Christ often in connection with a trumpet. Did you know that? It's not just here. Here, it gives us a little bit more, a bigger picture, but here are some other verses from Jesus. Jesus himself, when he was uh, in the flesh, or still, he's still in his flesh, but when he came to the earth 2,000 years ago, he said in Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Isn't that interesting? We just read about the four winds in Revelation 7 that God would protect his people before the judgment should come. And then we see also, not only in Jesus' teaching, but we also see in the writings of the Apostle Paul in his letters. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. He also says this, may be familiar to you in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be 
with the Lord. And what we get in our verses today, in our text from Revelation 11, is the same thing. But what John gives us, he, he adds a little bit more. He says that here at the seventh trumpet, the entire end time scenario is wrapped up in this blowing of the seventh trumpet. All things acquainted with the end times, with the end of history, happen and occur with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. This is the climax of history. This is when Jesus comes back to take for himself what is rightfully his. Verse 15, again, the loud voices in heaven are heard saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And this just means that he has dominion over all the world. He has no rival. There is none to challenge him. He has all power, all authority. The whole earth, everything in it is his, belongs to him, and he rules without contest. When the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, there will be no more lawlessness. There will be no more rebellion. There will be no more brokenness, no more injustice, no more unrighteousness. The way that God wants things to be, that will be the way that they forever are from that point on. So what is heaven's response? The seventh trumpet is blown. The loud voices in heaven declare that the kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. How does heaven respond Heaven responds like it always does throughout the book of Revelation, and we on earth need to catch up. It responds in worship. Responds in worship. Look at verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. They fell prostrate. They, have, they sit on thrones, and so they're people of honor. And yet they leave their place of honor and they fall face down before the king, the true king. See, these 24 elders in heaven around the throne, they represent the full number of God's people. I believe they represent the 12 tribes of Israel, God's Old Testament people, and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. I believe they symbolize and represent the full number of God's people that are there before the throne reigning with God. And what do they do? At the, at, the, at the sound of the seventh trumpet, they worship. They fall on their faces and worship God. This is the only appropriate response to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God does what he says he will do. He keeps his promises. He would right all wrongs. He would heal all the nations. He will rule the world in peace. He will rule the world in justice. Therefore, it calls for worship in thanksgiving, which is what the elders now give. In verse 17, so the 24 elders sit on their thrones before God. They fall on their faces and worship God. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So the first thing that happens when Jesus comes and history is over as we know it is he takes 
his power. The Lord takes his power. That is why the elders worship. That is what they give thanks to God for, that he comes and he takes his power. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. But do you notice something that seems a little bit unusual? Because we read this in chapter 1 earlier today, twice, in verse 4 and verse 8. It also shows up again in chapter 4, verse 8. Let me, let me read this one more time and see if you see what's missing. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. What are you expecting to hear? And what is not there? We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, and, and is to come. Why, why doesn't it say that he is to come? Because at this point in history, he has. There is no more future. The future is present. The future is now at this point in history. There is not looking for or anticipating the future return because he has come. And it is just now forever, the one who is and who was, because the future is now forever with our Lord and with his Christ. So they give praise and they give adoration and worship to God when the seventh trumpet is blown because the Lord takes his power. He begins his uncontested reign. See, the kingdom of this world is opposed to God. It always has been. But then there's also the kingdom of God, where God rules in righteousness and justice. And when Jesus came the first time over 2,000 years ago and gave his life at the cross and was raised again, the kingdom of God was inaugurated on the earth. When he came, his teaching began with, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. And it began with his death and with his resurrection. But we're still waiting, in some sense, for the consummation of his kingdom to come. And that's what happens in chapter 11. We are waiting between the first and second comings of Christ. Jesus is king right now. We've already read that in chapter 1, where he is already ruler of the kings of the earth. And he is reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And he will reign until all things are put under his feet, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. But there's the kingdom of this world, in which we live in now, which is opposed to God. And there is the kingdom of God. But when Jesus comes 2,000 years ago and gave his life at Calvary and was raised again to life three days later we see the two kingdoms overlapping. We live in the overlap right now. That's called the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Have you ever heard that before? The now and the not yet? That shows up a lot. The kingdom of God is here now, in some sense, yes, but not fully, as will be when he comes again, where we see our scripture today in Revelation chapter 11. The kingdom of God broke in to the kingdoms of the earth, to the kingdoms of the world, when Christ came the first time. He broke into this present evil age. And right now, there's war. There's war because there are two kingdoms at war for your soul, at war in this earth. But the elders not only give praise and thanks to God because Jesus now comes and takes his power and begins to reign, he, they also praise God because the nations no longer rage. 
The nations no longer rage. Look at verse 18, starting in 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to to reign. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. So when you hear about the nations raging, does that bring any Old Testament passage to mind? How about the very first of the royal Psalms, Psalm chapter 2? This is what you see in Psalm chapter 2. Hear this in Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you, speaking of Christ. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And that's what's happening when Jesus comes the second time at the seventh trumpet and he begins to reign. He takes his power. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So when the kingdom of God comes and he deserves all our praise, honor, glory, and adoration. For why? Because when he comes, he will take his power. Number two, the nations will no longer rage. And then number three, in verse 18, the dead are judged. And it says, the nations rage, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. We actually see this in greater detail in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 the great white throne judgment. So when Christ comes back, this is when all the peoples of the earth will be judged. It says in chapter 20, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So at the coming of our Lord, the dead are judged. But that's not all bad news. Because as you continue in verse 18, it says... The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. So when Jesus comes again, we find out in this passage that the saints are rewarded. The saints are rewarded. And we see this. Jesus talks about that in his parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right 
but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So when Jesus comes, yes, the dead will be judged, but the saints will be rewarded. And what makes one a saint? One who recognizes their sin and their offense against a holy God and humbles himself before God, repents of their sin, and trusts in the very life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be full satisfaction and payment for their sin. They are forgiven. They are adopted. They are called children of the Father. They get to call God Father. And they are rewarded as being saints, those who love the appearing of our Lord Jesus, who've waited for it, who've served faithfully, who've persevered to the end, who continue in steadfast love and good works, they will be rewarded. But that's not all. Verse 18 continues. So when Christ comes, it also says that the wicked will be destroyed. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Destroying the destroyers of the earth. The best picture of this shows up in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, by the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. Do you know what it is? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then finally in verse 19, we see that God is forever ever with his people. In verse 19 it reads, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. This completes John's vision that began in chapter 4. This actually is the first half of the book of Revelation. And what we see, we get, we hear about the Ark of the Covenant, which we haven't heard about pretty much anywhere much. And all of a sudden, he gets a vision in heaven of the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember where the ark was stored in the tabernacle in the temple, it was behind, it was in a place called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And there was a thick veil that separated it from all the people of God because God, the, the sin of God's people would separate them from the holiness of God. But a high priest once a year on the day of atonement would be able to go and enter the most holy place and, put, and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant. And he would do so um, as a way of uh, asking for forgiveness for the sins of God's people. He would only be able to do this once a year, and on that very special day, just one person, just the, the high priest. And yet here, 
we see at this time, after the seventh trumpet had been blown and that Jesus is returned, we see the Ark of the Covenant is seen. It is visible. And it's only visible because when Jesus died on the cross, what do you remember happened in the temple at that moment? The veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And now access to God was open. Fellowship with God, with God is possible through the blood of his son, Jesus. And that's what we see here. We have hope that we will forever be with God and God will forever be with his people through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And this concludes this first half of the book of Revelation with flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. What do we do with what we hear about all this today? Christ the King Sunday. That's great, but what does that mean for now? Right? Part of this is saying, okay, we look back at things that have happened and to bring them into our present. We look forward to things that will happen one day as if it were you know, in, in the present. But what does that mean for us today? Well, I've got three implications. The first, we should take a cue from the elders who were there before the throne. And that is worship. What do we do with Christ who is the king? We worship him. We fall on our faces in humility and we bow before the King of Kings and we say, you alone are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive all glory, honor, power, and dominion. You're worthy of it all, all thanksgiving. You're worthy of my life because worship is not just words. Worship is not just a posture. Worship is not just what happens when the people of God gather to sing a few songs. Worship is what happens throughout all of life, lived in obedience and in submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who demands our all. That's worship. That's what we do. It implies that we worship our king with our whole life in obedience and surrender to the king of kings. We let the world know, I don't live for myself, but I live for the king. I don't do what you do because I live for the king. I worship him, not just with my lips, but with my life, with my obedience, with my submission. And the second implication that we get from knowing Christ as king is that we are to persevere. Persevere in faith, persevere in faithfulness. This is another major theme that shows up multiple times in the book of Revelation. But there are exhortations throughout to encourage the church in the midst of persecution to endure, to stay faithful, to keep going, to not give up, to not faint, to keep doing the good work, persevere in faith, to endure. Church, we may not be persecuted, certainly not like many of those who've come before us and many of our brothers and sisters around the world today, but I do believe things are going to increasingly get more difficult all the time for us because there is a war taking place. There are two kingdoms at the moment in the present time. We have the kingdom of this world, which is set, opposed against the kingdom of God, but with Christ and his coming the first time, the kingdom of God is already broken in. There's a war taking place. And it will come and find all of those who are faithful to Jesus. And so over and over again, there's calls to those who remain faithful to death. Endure, remain faithful to death, but you won't have to worry about the second death. You don't have to worry about that, Jesus says. Just be like my faithful servant, Jesus, who died and rose again, and he ensured your resurrection as well. Be faithful, continue, persevere, endure, don't give up. And the third implication is this. Warn sinners to repent. Warn sinners to repent. 
Tim Chester, in a book that he wrote, a small little book on the ascension of Christ, he said this, that I cannot escape. It, st- it sticks with me. I can read stuff and just forget most everything, but this is one of those things that for years ago I read about it, and I'm like, I can't forget that. I keep coming back to it, and I want to end with this. When we talk about the third implication is that we need to warn sinners to repent. So I'm going to read just a little section from his book, and he says, we declare that Jesus is king and that Jesus will be king. Jesus has been given all authority by the Father, and one day every knee will bow before him. If people acknowledge his lordship now, they will experience his coming rule as blessing, as life, and as salvation. But if they reject him, they will experience his coming rule as conquest, death, and judgment. Therefore, this is, this is huge right here. Don't miss this. This says all the implications for how we go about uh, our mission of evangelism and taking the gospel to the nations. Therefore, we do not invite people to make Jesus their king. We tell people that Jesus is their king. We do not invite people to meet Jesus. We warn people that they will meet Jesus as their conquering king, either through the gospel or as their judge on the final day. We do not offer people a gospel invitation. We command people to repent and to submit to the coming king. That changes how we think about things, doesn't it? If Jesus really is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and if what we read here today is true, this is the truth that Jesus is everyone's king. And the Bible tells us that, yes, he was humbled. Philippians chapter 2 says he was humbled. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross. But he doesn't stay humble, does he? He is then also exalted. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is king. Is he your king today? The answer is yes, he is your king. And you will face him as king, as judge. He will either reward you as a saint or he will punish you as the wicked who have rebelled against his rightful rule over you. Today, I implore you, meet him in the gospel. Hear the demand to obey the gospel. Repent of your sins and your offense against a holy God. See the love of God in giving us his son to die in your place at the cross. There he took the punishment you deserve. There he received the judgment that we all deserve. If you would just repent of your sin, know that Jesus already took your punishment at the cross. The good news is when you believe in Jesus' death and resurrection as your satisfaction for sin, you are forgiven and you are given Christ's very righteousness. You have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and been brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. You have a new master, the right master, and you can rejoice in serving him now all your days and be just, just imagine his glory when he returns. You can greet this day with great hope, with great excitement, and with great joy, but we must tell everyone else that Jesus is king. They need to repent because he is coming. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for your word today, that it is powerful, 
And it is true. Thank you for the gospel that gives us hope. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to take our place at the cross. God, you didn't have to do this. You didn't have to do this. But in your great sovereign love, even before you created the heavens and the earth and all that is within them, you had already had a covenant of redemption with your son, Jesus. You had already determined that he should come and take on flesh, that he should live a sinless and perfect life under the law of God, which we all were commanded to do, but none of us could. And then he also died as our substitute, as our sacrifice, and received the punishment for our disobedience. But then he was raised again to life, knowing that you have indeed received his payment for sin, is paid in full. Christ is vindicated, and there is hope for all who put their, their trust in him. Thank you for loving us and giving us a way of escape Thank you for being a perfect God, a perfect Savior, a God of justice, a God of mercy, a king that we all desire and we all need and we really all want because we're terrible kings and the kings of this world are terrible kings. They abuse their authority. They abuse their power. All they do is oppress. All they do is enslave. But you, God, you liberate, you free. You are perfect God. You are the prince of peace. We thank you, God, call sinners to yourself today that they might repent and believe in Jesus. And may we, your chosen ones, those who have been saved, may we worship you even now as the elders did or before your throne. Receive all this glory from your people now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.